0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Please turn in Holy Scripture to Isaiah 65, 13. Could we have enough light so that people can read their Bibles? That would be very helpful. Thank you. Isaiah 65 13 to 66 24. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning at Isaiah 65 13. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death. But to his servants, he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain says the lord this is what the lord says heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where is the house you will build for me where will my resting place be has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being declares the lord these are the ones i look on with favor those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear the uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to distant islands that have not heard of my name or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots, and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels." And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat of them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin this last, briefer address by reminding you of three characteristics of Old Testament prophecy. I've hinted at them on the way by, now I want to formulate them before we approach our text. Number one, Old Testament prophecy is characterized by subtle relative distance. Let me explain what I mean. I was born in Eastern Canada and Montreal. If you get in a car in Montreal and start driving west in Canada, it's a very full, very long day's drive to get to the Great Lakes, especially the Sault Ste. Marie area. Then it's another long day's drive to get to Winnipeg. You go around Lake Superior and keep going through the old mountains, and eventually you get to Winnipeg that's the second day's drive. Then you get in your car and you drive west again, and it is flat as a pancake. I mean flat. The 40 miles west of Winnipeg constitute the flattest land I have seen anywhere in the world, and it's not much better for the next 760 miles. (laughs) It's 800 miles between Winnipeg and Calgary, another long day's drive. That's farther than John of Groats to Land's End. That's the third day. Now you're in Calgary. From there, it's 650 miles by car to Vancouver. But now you go through the Rocky Mountains. As you drive west out of Calgary, you you start seeing the foothills. And then in a little farther on, the hills have behind them the alpine mountains of the eastern range of the Rocky Mountains, snow-covered 365 days of the year. But one of the things that you notice as you drive, as you approach mountains, whether in Canada or anywhere in the world, for that matter, one of the things you notice is that from a distance, you can't tell the distance between the first range and the second range, or between the second range and the third range. They all get flattened out. From a distance, it's very hard to estimate how far it is between the first foothills and the first Alpine mountains, or between the first Alpine mountains and Banff, just behind them, and so on. It's just very difficult. It all gets flattened out. That's a bit like the perspective of Old Testament prophets. They look forward to what God is going to do. And Isaiah can see that God is going to bring back the exiles, Not only so, but Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And not only so, but people will gather to Jerusalem and there will be songs and dance and marriages and and blessing. But sadly, there will also be failure and idolatry and sin and corruption. He sees all of that. And then the time is coming ultimately when the Messiah comes. In the first third of his prophecy, the Messiah is presented as the coming Davidic king. In the second Third, he is presented primarily as the suffering servant. And in the third Messiah uh, uh, section, he's presented as the conqueror, the one who brings all opponents to an end. That's all part of what Isaiah sees. And then ultimately, he sees... He sees massive destruction, and he sees massive blessing. He sees, ultimately, a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness, and, and also what the New Testament writers, frankly, describe as hell, condemnation, judgment, decay, a worm that does not die, as, as Jesus picks up on the expression. What, what you don't see, what Isaiah doesn't see clearly, at least if he sees it, he doesn't put it into his book. He doesn't see how much distance there is from one site to the next site, to the next site, to the next site. And so one of the things that happens when you read Old Testament prophets is you perceive that these things are coming, but they are not necessarily laid out in series or in sequence. You can move quickly from one to the other because from the prophet's perspective, from a phenomenological perspective, as he he looks forward, it's all flat. It's flattened out. He's not able to perceive, or it's not given to him to perceive the, 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 the sequence of events. But what you do see is event after event after event. And from our perspective, farther down the road, we can look back and see some of the distances. And we can look forward and see what is yet to come. That's the first thing I want to say about Old Testament prophecy. Second, As we have noticed already, partly because of this ability to squash different events in the future together, it's typical of Isaiah as a prophet, it's typical of the Old Testament prophets to describe the future in categories that belong to the Old Covenant. So there's talk about unclean food, and there's talk about uh, 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 false garden shrines, and there's talk about uh, observing um, observing holy days. And there's, there's, there's talk about um, a variety of things we'll draw attention to in due course that all have to do with Old Covenant religion, kosher food versus unkosher food. So that the blessing of God is measured in terms of people who align themselves with the Old Covenant because that's the covenant in which, under which they find themselves as Isaiah addresses them. But here and there, there are little hints that what's coming breaks all the barriers of the Old Covenant. It, it, it outstrips them, and I will draw attention to some of those things as well. It's warning flags that say, we're going beyond this, folks. We're going beyond this. Look up. Finally, prophetic language, especially in Isaiah, is shaped by sharp contrasts and antitheses, Did you notice when I was was reading this that you'd read a paragraph that talks of blessing and great productivity and fruitfulness and holiness, then the next paragraph, it's disaster and judgment and condemnation, then a few verses on, it's blessing again, and then it's judgment you go back and forth and back and forth. It jerks you around emotionally. If you're thinking about what you're reading, it's hard to read. It jerks you around. What is it? Which one applies to me? How does it work? How do they come together? Do you see? So that even at the very end, the last three verses, on the one hand, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, so will your name and in and, and descendants endure from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. You think, amen. That's a great way. We'll end up on a high note. And then you read, and they will go and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms will eat them and will not die. Now, this has the effect of making the prophetic voice Urgent. This is nothing to play around with. If the prophet is right in the blessing, he's right as well in the cursing. We're heading to one or the other. There's no sort of in-between ground. It's absolutist, and our age doesn't like such absolutes. So our age becomes uncomfortable with the text of Holy Scripture. But I tell you the truth. If we are to regain an authoritative, prophetic voice, we must recover the message of Isaiah the prophet, the word of God given through his servant, the prophet Isaiah. So born along by the Spirit of God, Isaiah draws together some of the many strands of his prophecy by highlighting six themes, themes that drive the running tension between judgment and hope. If I had to give this section of Scripture a title, that's what I would call it, judgment and hope. I'm going to go through these six rather quickly. I don't have time to comment on each verse, but you'll be able to follow it yourself and meditate on the text for yourself. Six themes. Number one, the blessed consummation the blessed culmination of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. 6, 17 to 25. Let me draw your attention to a handful of details in this section, verses 17 to 25. Notice it's a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, that's the way the Bible ends up too in the final vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, these are very physical depictions. They are not ethereal or incorporeal. They anticipate resurrection existence placed within the stream of redemptive history. They remind us of something important. Jesus is still a human being with a human, albeit resurrected, body. There's no biblical text that depicts Jesus saying after the resurrection, whew, glad that's over and I can drop this body and get back home. There's no text that says that or hints at it. Rather, for all eternity, he is the God-man. And he incorporates his redeemed people as human beings with resurrection bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. Our hope is not to lose our bodies in death here and then be ethereal. Yes, temporarily, in what Christian theologians have called the intermediate state. We, we, we die, and, and as Paul puts it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Paul's ultimate hope is not to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord incorporeally. He wants to be clothed again with resurrection existence, with with transformed bodily existence. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In thus, and thus he he is incorporated into the kind of body that, that Jesus himself has this side of the resurrection. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Second, the blessings are cast once again in terms of old covenant realities. Jerusalem is mentioned several times, verses eighteen and nineteen, verses twenty-one and twenty-two, and this sort of thing leads to a Jerusalem typology. Let me let me put, let me put it this way: there are, in effect, two Jerusalems in the Bible. There's Jerusalem that is wicked it's evil it's disgusting it's rebellious it gets condemned it gets destroyed it's the center of idolatry jerusalem itself becomes a kind of babylon and then there are promises about a new jerusalem as these passages where everything is wonderful again where children dance in the streets and marriages take place and there's fruitfulness and happiness and 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 this goes so far as as to light up the last two chapters of the Bible again. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So that Jerusalem becomes the symbol of the city of the great king. In other words, the line of demarcation between Jerusalem, bad, and Jerusalem coming out of heaven, good, is so strong that ultimately the New Testament writers and other people in the first century, for that matter, started looking forward to the future as the coming of a new Jerusalem. That's what Galatians says. Galatians, that is so focused on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, yet it anticipates the coming of a heavenly Jerusalem. Do you see? And the same sort of thing is, is found in Hebrews chapter 12. We, we don't come to, to Mount Zion, we, we come to a new mountain. We come to the new Jerusalem. That's where we gather. So that Jerusalem becomes thus a symbol for the city of the great king where there is righteousness on the last day. And the symbolism is all cast in terms of the old world, 12 gates and 12 foundations for 12 apostles and 12 tribes and so on. All of that is tied to the old covenant symbolism, yet there is a new Jerusalem that outstrips everything. I remember teaching in an Asian country some years ago, and I was having lunch with some students, and this particular student was from India, and uh, he was intrigued by the fact that I wasn't an American, but had come from Canada. He said, now Canada, he said, is a big country, isn't it? I said, yes, and in, in terms of land mass, it's considerably bigger than continental U.S. Oh, how many people do you have? Well, um, at the time, I said about 29 million, It's about 33 million now. About 29 million. Just 29 million? You must be so lonely. (laughs) My state in India is the smallest of the states, and we have 140 million. Uh, Boy, there's a culture clash, you know. We Canadians dream of retiring out to the country where the nearest neighbor's at least five miles off. And here these guys are unhappy unless they're surrounded by millions of bodies. But, you know, the ultimate vision of the new heaven and the new earth is gathered around a city. It's a social vision. It's not how to go and retire and be lonely all by yourself out in the country, cut your own grain, milk your own cow. It's a city vision where people interact with each other and live and serve and live together, and the king is present. Do, do, do you see? It's a social vision. A new Jerusalem. One of the most challenging, number three, one of the most challenging depictions is in verse 20. Did you notice it? Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. We have a maple in our backyard at home. I, I guess it's probably 170 years old. There's some oaks in the area that are two or three hundred years old. And your life will be as long as that of a tree, the text is saying. And if you die at a hundred, People will comment and say, boy, he sure died young. And there won't be any babies dying after a few days old. Do you see? What this is a picture of is, is a kind of longevity that reminds us of, of how long people lived in Genesis before sin took hold in, in this fallen, damned world, as it were. Now, that reality has engendered debate in the history of the church. I won't resolve it. I'll tell you what it is so that you won't think I'm hiding something. For some people, those are temporal depictions. They're depictions of time that are actually interested in eternal longevity. In, in other words, it doesn't say, and they will live forever. It says they'll live a long time about the length of the life of a tree, but it's it's merely a A symbol-laden way of saying they will live forever and what is at stake is really eternal longevity. And there are other Christians who in the history of the church have argued this is a depiction of a millennial period, a period short of the very end of the age where there will be many, many, many blessings, if not yet the final blessings of, of resurrection, eternal existence. You sort out your own eschatology. Whichever it is, it's cool. It's terrific. It's transforming. It's not death-dealing. It's life-giving. It's a transformed society under the promise of God. Number four, there will be no PTSD. I think everybody knows what PTSD is these days. There's no PTSD. The text says that. Verse 17, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. PTSD is suffered by people who've gone through terrible trauma, often in war, and then the memories come back and resurface and resurface and resurface and resurface and cripple you emotionally and volitionally. But there'll be no more PTSD because the former things will not be remembered. It's not just a transformation of physical existence. It's a transformation of emotional and memory existence as well and then verse five we hear the echoes now of the utter transformation of the entire world Um, did you notice verses 24 and 25 how very much they call forth memory of of isaiah 11 which we looked at earlier in the week Therefore, when they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Such utter transformation. Despite a lot of nostalgic rubbish, nature is a cruel place. Do you remember the old poem, The Law of the Jungle? Now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the skies, and the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. Kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, but now a transformed world in which there is no more law of the jungle. No. Somehow, somehow, a measure, a degree of consummation which results in peace and no cruelty and no barbarism. So that's the first strand that the prophet weaves to remind us of where we've been, the blessed consummation. More quickly, the other five. Number two, the centrality of God and his word, chapter 66, verses 1 to 6. Here it's important to see that the transcendent creator cannot be circumscribed or limited. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Do you see in pagan religion, you you, you build a temple. And in the temple, you organize certain sacrifices. And you have a certain kind of priesthood. It's all designed in part to domesticate God's so you have a temple to Neptune and a temple to Zeus and, and a, a temple to Mercury on the Latin front. It, you, you, that, that, that's what you have, all of these, these, these wonderful sacrifices and, and temples that domesticate God. The temple of the Old Testament was not supposed to be like that. Solomon, when he prayed for the dedication of the temple, he understood that. He said, behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. But in the pagan world... The temples domesticated God, and now God speaks for himself. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? You don't domesticate me. You don't control me by offering a cow now and then. Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? Do you really think that I'm the sort of God that looks on you with favor because you you offer the right sacrifice? No, 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 no. To these ones I look with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Without trembling at God's word, well, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. You're you're defying what God says. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Didn't we see earlier how the the prophet Isaiah condemned those who who went through the ritual of Sabbath service and who went through the ritual of of organized religion, but but, but God said, in effect, your offerings are a stench in my nostrils. It's it's all ridiculous. No, 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 no. You start not with a sacrifice, but with the word of God. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Otherwise, whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Whoever turns, burns memorial incenses is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways. They delight in their abominations, abominations which formerly God has commanded, but which are offered so lackadaisically or so rebelliously or so manipulatively or... So under the impression that somehow they can win brownie points with God this way, they don't really fear him, they don't know his word, they don't believe it, they don't read it, they don't trust it, they don't obey it. Small wonder that the Lord Jesus, the night that he goes to the cross, prays a prayer that we find in John 17. And amongst the petitions he offers for his blood-bought people is this. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Do you want to come from sanctified churches? Do everything you can to have everyone in the church reading the word of God. Reading it so as to understand it, not as if it's a magic book. A verse a day keeps the devil away. But to read it, to understand it, to love it, to obey it, to think God's thoughts after him, to this one will God look. Number three, there are vignettes of unqualified blessing and vignettes of divine fury, verses 7 to 16. Verses 7 to 9 are almost funny. I can imagine that there are some women here who don't find them funny, just implausible. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Uh Uh-huh. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Well, frankly, nobody. But what you get in these depictions is that when the Lord brings in the new heaven and the new earth, the signs are coming, but when it happens, it happens so quickly. In New Testament terms, in the twinkling of an eye. In in a flash, the Lord shall come, and it'll be too late to do anything about it. It, It's done. It's not something that's brought in by procedures or or processes or human improvement or anything of that order. No, it's it's as if you come to the time when, when, when a woman brings forth, and there are no pains. Bang, it happens. Son's there. Spectacular vignettes. Comfort and nurture in verses 10 to 11. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her and all you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. That is the breasts of the city of Jerusalem, now seen as as the mother of the people of God. A fairly common image in Isaiah the prophet. And there's a picture of prosperity, verses 12 and 13. And the alternative, the only alternative is the fury of god 14b his fury will be shown to his foes see the lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind he will bring down his anger with wrath and his rebuke with flames of fire number four once again spelled out the danger of false gods verse 17. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, that is, the gardens with the pagan shrines, we've seen them before, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things. They're following religion that not only doesn't save, it condemns its rankest idolatry, and God finds it disgusting. Then, number five the worldwide reach of the glory of god verses 18 to 21 these are spectacular texts and i because of what they have planned and done am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages they will come and see my glory that's almost a threat yet on the other hand Positively, I will set a sign among them, and I will send some to those who survive, to the nations, to Tarshish, that's Spain, to Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, is what this conference is about. We're in the business, under God, of fulfilling these words. Places that have not seen God's glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. Not only so, but verse 21, I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. In other words, all these Gentiles, these Urdu-speaking Pakistanis, these Swahili-speaking Kenyans, These Japanese, these Spaniards, these Irishmen who are not Jews, have no right to the covenant, certainly don't have the right to serve as Levitical priests. But I'm calling them in, God says. I'm sending people out to bring them in to display my glory. I'm calling them in. And we read, I will select some of them to be priests and Levites. In other words, you are outstripping the Old Testament categories. The depictions are cast in Old Testament covenantal terms and symbols, but at the same time, there are hints like here that these Old Testament symbols and, and, and categories are being outstripped as the people of God comes in from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. They're going to be six-foot-six Swedes there, blonde-haired, a whole bunch of them and four-foot-six Bolivian pygmies. They're going to be people with brown skins, red skins, yellow skins, black skins. They're going to be people from all kinds of strange places, even the odd Canadian. (laughs) Have you ever stopped to think Jesus depicts this day as... Embracing men and women from every language and tribe and people and nation. What language are we going to speak in heaven? Hmm? Well, the Chinese think they know, and there are more of them, so how are we going to contradict them? The Americans are sure it's English for obvious reasons. I know some people who guess it must be Hebrew. Do you know what I think? I don't think there's just one language to heaven. We're used to recognizing the fact that there are people from every language and tribe and people and nation, so we expect the Bolivians to look like Bolivians and the Swedes to look like Swedes. They're from every tribe. And why not the people from the language group of such and such keep their language group? Why not? If it takes me a million years to learn Mandarin, who cares? Use the next million years for Arabic. It's interesting to me that that God reverses Babel at Pentecost not by giving one language, but by giving one message. At Babel, God confused the tongues of the people so that the people would divide. When they come together at Pentecost, he doesn't give them all one language. He gives them one message, the message of Jesus Christ in all the languages of the world because there is so much cultural beauty and distinctiveness in all of those languages. And so our missionary efforts work through different languages, different peoples, different tribes, different cultures, all transformed and changed and brought under the lordship of Christ, under the control of the cross. But all that beauty, I was brought up in French. I like French. It's a romance language. It's beautiful. Now, if you prefer to study German and say Achtung with a proper guttural, God bless you, you can come too. (laughs) But there's something beautiful about different languages, isn't there? All kept, all preserved, nothing lost, different cultures, men and women transformed. I'm going to have fun learning Arabic. Aren't you? Aren't there a lot of Arabic-speaking people you'd like to talk to? And this worldview that lifts up the glory of God. In John's gospel, Christ's glory, the glory of God in Christ, is manifest, first of all, in the signs that Jesus does. For example, when he turns water into wine in Cana of Galilee, we're told that the disciples saw his glory. The visitors saw the miracle. The disciples with better eyes saw his glory. But by the time you get to chapter 12 in John's Gospel, God's glory in Christ Jesus is not seen so much in miracles as in the cross. He is to be glorified, to be returned to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He is to be glorified by being lifted up in the shame and ignominy and torture of the cross. Do you remember how Moses prayed? Show me your glory, and God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. Show me Jesus' glory, and he says, in effect, let me die on the cross and I'll show you my glory in the blood and the sweat and the tears and the cries and the loneliness and the despair and the cry of desolation. I will show you my glory because that's where the goodness is demonstrated. And by this hideous means, He pays for our sin, rises from the the, the grave, and returns to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He is glorified. And we, his people, are sent to Tarshish and Libya and Lydia and all the other places, off to that faraway set of... British Isles that the Roman Empire knew a little bit about, but not much. And ultimately, the places like Australia, Latin America, before it was Latin. Some people are offended by God talking this way. God wants to show off his glory. I've had students ask me in open Q&A times in universities in the last few years say, Doesn't the God of the Bible sound like a bit of a megalomaniac? He wants people to praise him. He's talking about showing his glory. You sing praises about singing to the glory of God. Amongst ourselves, we don't like to be with somebody who always wants to be the center of attention, the center of the universe. That's disgusting. It's ego. It's it's egomaniacal. You don't. You don't. Your your God is not attractive to me. He could do with a little lesson in humility, don't you think? How do you reply to that? Listen to the text. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of them to this and that and so on. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. That's what the text says. Well, first of all, the reason we don't like human beings to occupy the front place all the time is because we're all just human beings. Why should one human being have the limelight all the time? But there is but one God. And he is qualitatively different from all of us. To recognize God's glory is to recognize God as he is. And and there's an even deeper reason. It's not that God needs to be stroked. It's not that we get to Thursday afternoon and God in heaven is saying, oh, I can hardly wait till Sunday when they break out their guitars and sing a few songs and tell me how hot I am. God doesn't need us. In eternity past, he was entirely content and happy. He he, he doesn't need us. Worship is not to improve Jesus' mood or his Father's mood because, because we're praising him. No, 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 no. Our praise for him is for our good. He demands it not because he needs it but because we do. We won't worship him and acknowledge him as the center and the savior and the transformer unless, unless we recognize that his glory is at the center of everything. The worldwide reach of the glory of God. Finally, verses 22 to 24. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me declares the Lord. So will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, still using Old Testament calendrical approaches. All mankind, which is outstripping the old covenant completely, will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. But understand this, there's not only a new heaven and a new earth to be gained, there's a hell to be shunned. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be all loathsome to all mankind. You know, somehow, some of us have adopted the assumption, without quite saying so, that it must have been pretty awful to be an Old Testament believer, but it's a lot nicer to be a New Testament believer. I mean, the Old Testament believer has God killing off people and genocide here and wipe out a tribe there. In the New Testament, it's turn the other cheek and gentle Jesus meek and mild. Isn't that much better? It's almost not the same God. That's what some people have argued. But that doesn't have it quite right. What do you do with a passage like this one? One of many. This one in Revelation 14. We read Still, another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung its sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The image is of a great vineyard where people gather the grapes and throw them into a huge vat, a huge vat where the servant girls kick off their sandals and get in there and start cramping down the grapes, and at the bottom of the vat, there are little holes with stone channels that take the grape juice to underground stone bottles, and the the grape juice is stored until it's time to prepare it for fermentation to become wine. But now the image is transformed. This is the great wine press of God's wrath, and people are thrown into it and trampled underfoot until their blood flows to the height of a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Now, you tell me that the God, the depiction of God under the new covenant is softer. Most of our most colorful images of hell come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. You see, it's not the case that as you move from the old covenant to the new, you move from a God of severity to a God of love. That's not it at all. Rather, as you move from the old covenant to the new, You ratchet up the depictions of God's love with their climax in the cross. How wonderful. And you ratchet up the pictures of God's justice and judgment until you end up with a clear depiction of hell. Both axes are ratcheted up with great clarity. And that's the way Isaiah ends. I know some missionaries who are really good at helping people get the food they need and the training they need and the hygiene they need, the medical supplies they need, but who are really nervous about talking about the exclusiveness of Christ and his death, about giving people the gospel as it really shows up in the New Testament, the good news of of God's own son bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. They, They just find that's a bit too much. And I would say they don't believe the Bible and they don't love people very much. Because if they love people enough to give them a sewing machine but don't love them enough to tell them how to escape the wrath to come, they don't love them very much. And that's the way the book of Isaiah comes to an end all the pulsing drama, the promise of good, the promise of terror, the promise of judgment, the promise of blessing, pointing forward to one who says, come to me, all you are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. Let us pray. Grant us clarity on such eternal matters, Heavenly Father, and courage and humility of mind and faithfulness so that whether we serve as your ambassadors in our own neighborhoods and schools and factories and workplaces or whether we serve as ambassadors in a different culture and an alien language, we will learn to be faithful to all that Holy Scripture says, remembering that it is written, you look to those who are contrite and humble in spirit and who tremble at your word. Give us such trembling obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org/slash/donate.